So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about home and homelessness. So it seems to me that uh, we as human beings have an almost inherent uh, need for home, for a sense of home. Uh, a sense of security. And uh, this is what I want to explore a little bit, the different aspects of that and the different sort of levels of that and what, uh, what we can discover there. So we have this felt need for security and the question is, how are we responding in our lives to that need for security? It's there. I think it's actually a given. How are we responding to it? So if you uh, read the original text uh, uh, of the, uh, from the time of the Buddha, a lot of uh, encouragement and emphasis given to uh, uh, at first actually just men, later men and women, uh, to lead what's called the homeless life, to actually leave their homes, their families, their uh, work, and, and devote their entire lives to, be, uh, to the Dharma, to be homeless, literally, wandering from one place to another. And there's a sort of uh, well-known and often... Uh, uh, it's a passage that appears often in, in, the, in the suttas, in the original discourses, uh, describing someone's reflection when they're, when they're considering leaving home. I just, some of you may know it. It's a person, in this case it's a man. Uh, he thinks, Dusty and confined, or dusty and crowded, is the householder's life. The homeless life is wide open. It is not easy living the householder's life, to live the fully perfected holy life, pure as a polished shell. Suppose I were to shave off my hair and beard, don yellow robes and go forth from household life into homelessness. And after some time he abandons his property, small or great, leaves his circle of relatives, small or great, shaves off his hair and beard, small, no it doesn't say that. <laughs> dons yellow robes and goes forth into the homeless life and this is a sort of a, a passage of, of triumph you know in, in the original sutras um, having said that I just learned a tiny bit myself about this sort of social structure at that time 2500 years ago in India and just briefly it was a uh, the predominant religious culture was sort of uh, from the Vedic uh, tradition, uh, from the Vedas and Brahminical traditions. And it was believed in those traditions that everyone in society had their place. So the Brahmins, the priests, down to if you were a householder, it was your duty to keep your place and do your duty in, in, the, in the role of that of whatever your place was. And if you didn't do that, then the sun would literally not come up tomorrow. 
the uh, rivers would stop flowing, etc. So it was believed that a person's social role, uh, their role in society was fixed and predetermined and uh, actually helped kind of keep the universe together. And so roles were extremely fixed. The role of the householder was very fixed with a lot of pre... Uh, what's this called? Prescribed uh, duties, etc. So it was very, very difficult for someone in that situation to devote themselves to Dharma, to have a sense of freedom in, in all of that. I think it's different now. It's different now. So we're all here. Uh, there's people who are not monks or nuns and yet very, very devoted to, to, the, uh, to the truth, devoted to the, to the path. Also, I, uh, worth reflecting that now, when we look at monastic life now, that uh, monks and nuns, for the most part, live in monasteries. So they are actually no longer uh, wandering from place to place as they were primarily at the time of the Buddha. Uh, it, they've, had, they've sort of made their own homes now and live there. The whole idea of monasteries is relatively new. The question uh, for us as lay people, and I actually know there are people in this hall who are, who are seriously considering or have seriously considered at one time uh, taking roads, taking up the homeless life, so to speak. But what does it mean for us in all its different levels? Uh, what might that mean? What does home mean? What can it mean? What does homelessness mean? As I said, this is something we're dealing with anyway. We're responding to these uh, needs, these desires anyway. How are we responding to it? Some, uh, some of you, I know, and I'm sure, uh, will have had or are having or will have in the future periods when you're actually homeless. Uh, by by um, so Right from the start, so I'm not talking about uh, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, terrible social situation where people get, you know, can't afford a place to live and they're on the street. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about deliberate, uh, deliberately not having a fixed place, being homeless. And for some, uh, some spend months or years in this kind of mode, years in mode, uh, devoting themselves to to uh, to the Dharma, to the truth, to to uh, traveling to explore that. And for some, this can be absolutely great. Uh, There's a liberation that happens, there's a letting go that happens, and the potential for discovery there and freedom is enormous. So if it's possible, or if it's something one's thinking about, to really consider it. Having said that, I also know many people who have undertaken such a period of homelessness, and you know, been in India for years. And the truth is, and probably they would admit it as well. And in some cases, they do admit it. It, it made actually not much difference. It didn't really make much difference. So, any spiritual path that we're on, or any practice that we're doing, uh, one of the aspects of maturity is being aware of what the particular pitfalls of that path are. So sometimes it's easy to look at other people's practices and see, oh, well, they, 
they you know could go wrong there or they are going wrong with it this and that and all the problems we're not actually aware of the path that we're engaged in what the potential pitfalls are and this takes a lot of maturity and a lot of openness and clarity and a lot of honesty a lot of honesty so we as uh, householders as lay people uh, what's the danger in that what are some of the dangers, potential dangers in that? This is a really important question to ask about any, any uh, direction we have in life, any choices that we make in life, any practices that we do. So to me, one of the potential risks is that we, uh, in having a home and that kind of security in the world, we actually come to protect that, over-protect it, and we lose a certain element of um, risk-taking in life. I'm not saying this does happen, I'm saying it's a possibility and we need to be really ruthlessly honest about that being a real possibility. We lose our capacity for taking risks to some degree or other. We can also lose what I was talking about uh, last night and a little bit this morning, our sense of priority that freedom and truth are the priority. We can actually lose that or maybe never even get to that place that it becomes a priority. <clears throat> so a little, quite recently I was um, somewhere else and uh, talking with a group of people about right livelihood. And uh, someone said they were an engineer and they worked on different projects. And then they became aware that one project was uh, a munitions project making some it was whatever they were doing was going to end up in a missile something and they didn't they really were not okay with that they really had a problem with that and so they reflected on it and they kind of wrote a letter and kicked up a bit of a fuss but there was a limit to how far they would go they weren't prepared to quit the job or, or whatever and just asking, and I wasn't. It was just uh, really wanting a sense of honesty there. And the person said, "Well, if I quit, I knew I wouldn't be able to get another job. I knew I wouldn't be able to get another job." And I, I mean, I didn't actually press it, but there was there was a sense of just not being totally honest about what was being. Um, what was being sacrificed, what was being given up. So none of this is easy stuff. I'm not, uh, what I'm talking about tonight is, is quite challenging. I'm not, uh, and I'm not saying any shoulds. I'm just uh, perhaps proposing a, a rather ruthless honesty about it all. Is it possible? Is it possible that being involved with possessions <coughs> being involved with things, being invested and wrapped up in roles and identified with roles in life, the different roles we have in life, that we're somehow, to some extent, closing the door on something else, closing the door of, uh, to something <coughs> vast, that we've wrapped our being around something small, possessions, things, roles. Is that possible that that goes on? Is the opposite possible? That because we don't so much have an abiding sense 
of something vast that we then tend to wrap ourselves around what is small. It's easy to get lost in things if we're not keeping that sense of vastness or uh, mystery or whatever you want to call it, if we're not keeping that alive. So, I mean, just briefly, you can see this very easily with money. And money is interesting. We we very rarely talk about money. Uh, I don't know how many Dharma talks there are about money in the library. I think zero. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I'm actually not going to talk about it tonight, but just to go, just to touch on it very briefly. <coughs> it, it seems, it seems to me that in in our relationship with money, it's so, it's something we have to be really firm with ourselves about. It's so easy to get kind of dragged down and pulled down by the, uh, the, the 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 movements in 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 and around us. Dragged down into a certain way of viewing life certain way of, of uh, seeing life um, in terms of what we're gaining, what we're losing, what we're having that's maybe losing value or gaining value for the future. And it's all very understandable uh, given what's, what's coming to us from society, from the culture. Um, but in a way there's a kind of madness in it. And sometimes the madness is, is quite extreme. So I, I can't remember where I was reading, but recently... I read that uh, someone, they, they got hold of a little plastic travel hairdryer that was used by Jackie Onassis, and it went up for auction, and it went for about £5,000. And similarly, uh, what did they find? Um, a piece of cake, this is even weirder, a piece of cake from the <coughs> marriage of the Duke of Windsor, whoever he is. Um, <laughs> somehow preserved in a matchbox. I don't know how it got preserved from 1920. I don't even know. 25,000 pounds. It's, it's insane. Just what, we, what we've actually assigned value to and, and what's happened with money. So there's obviously that level of it. But just in the way we can get pulled into the sort of everyone's agreeing about this relationship with money. Can we pierce through that and see life is not that? Life is not that. Is it possible that if we have that relationship, that there's something in the heart that's actually closing because of that? The heart is closing in fear and in future thinking. This is not easy. None of this is easy. It's not going to be an easy talk tonight, sorry. And I, a good friend, and she said uh, a while ago, she was she was saving money, and she the thought was very consciously, when I have X amount, I will feel safe. And now she has X amount, and she doesn't feel safe. And she also said, I think it was, I can't remember if it was two separate conversations. Um, she notices, beginning to notice a relationship. She said, I feel. When I feel unhappy, I feel actually impoverished, financially, materially impoverished. And she begin to notice this relationship with how one actually feels in terms of what one has, the security one has through that. But we don't have to be passive observers of that relationship. 
So there's a relationship between happiness and sense of impoverishment. To me it's quite clear what needs to happen. It's actually not build the money up, it's build the happiness up. So in in part of being honest, it's not to underestimate the enormous uh, power and influence of the forces that that arrive at our uh, eyes and ears uh, every day around us. And the other day I was just in Newton Abbott, you know, buying something or whatever, and assailed by all all this... uh, you know, different interest rates as you walk by the different insurance, um, what are they called, building societies, banks, etc. Not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy uh, living living this household life and keeping alive that sense of priority. So I, I live upstairs and uh, have done for almost two years. And uh, it's actually not very easy living here in a lot of respects, um, for different reasons, which I won't go into now. <laughs> but at one point, I can't remember when it was, I put a sign up on my, on my, <coughs> on my cupboard, and um, it says, <laughs> I am homeless. I don't live here. <laughs> then a little while later, I added underneath, death is all around. When I look at this, I feel very happy. <laughs> Catherine came in. <laughs> Catherine came in and she looked at it and she said, I think you're in denial, Rob. <laughs> There's something, it's almost a reminder to, to myself. We need to remind ourselves about where we're making a sense of home and where the real, real security is. So the Buddha talks a lot about uh, security in practice, making a home in the Dharma. Uh, the, the word monk, I think, its root, uh, uh, etymologically, is uh, mono, mono, I think, is mono, meaning one. Monk or nun, monastic, is a person with a one-track mind, freedom. That's what they're interested in. And one priority, unlike uh, what's usually the case for people in the householder life, many priorities, many priorities, and understandable, and in a way that's a choice we've made. In a way, coming on retreat is just being mono for a while. That's just that's all we need to do here. Just just focus on that one track mind here. So the Buddha talks about, can we, in our lives, can we build a home, build a mooring, build a root, uh, build our roots in the Dharma, uh, in practices? Can we, do we have a home and a root in sila, in ethics, what I was talking about in the opening talk? That we have a sense of rootedness in uh, a relationship of care and respect uh, and equality even. Uh, love even with others, with ourselves, with others that we are rooted in that our lives, our choices, our orientation in life is rooted in that sometimes hearing something like that sounds flimsy we want walls we want uh, things in the bank we want, you know, retirement fund all important, all understandable but the more we practice, the more we see actually to be rooted in the Dharma, 
is, is uh, more secure, it's not flimsy. So to be rooted in sila, in, in ethics, to be rooted in the practices, in developing what's beautiful, and to be rooted in wisdom. <coughs> so uh, earlier today we had the question on um, uh, the Four Noble Truths, and um, the question has gone. Anyway, um, are we rooted in a view? Four Noble Truths is a view. Are we rooted in a view? Are we oriented in a view? When something is difficult, when there's suffering, the view is. How can I work with this? How can I uh, see this differently that relieves some of the suffering? That that becomes an orientation and, a, and actually a kind of a home. That that's how we're relating to life. Typically, and again, it's very understandable, it's very human. Something goes wrong and we want to fix it. You know, from the most mundane thing to to the most uh, important thing. So whatever it is, our relationship is usually fixing, fixing what's wrong, mending what's broken in the world. And of course a lot of that's important and when, when our shelter does break we need to fix it. When our relationships are fractured we need to heal that. When our health is uh, decaying we need to address that. But still, can there be a different priority? As I was talking about last night, can the priority be shifted? And so to have priority in the Four Noble Truths, in right view, is that the priority is freedom. How clear is that for us? How clear is that? So that we're genuinely, really, really genuinely, not expecting this world to be comfortable, to be truly secure, uh, to be kind of just right for us. There's, there's, you know, we can hear that and say, yeah, sure, I understand, everything's, everything's, you know, impermanent, fragile, yeah, yeah, sure. But genuinely, genuinely deep down, that we're, we understand that we actually can't have a sense of complete fulfillment in the conditions of the world. So just that much, really understanding that, really seeing that, is already very deep wisdom. Very deep wisdom. So what happens, and it's in a way part of the human condition, is that we actually we become blind to this. We become blind to uh, the fact that uh, we cannot find that security in the world, ultimately. We cannot get everything just right and just comfortable. I think that's a human condition. It may be the case that our culture is, uh, because of the technological advances, advances and all that, it's actually very possible to get it very comfortable, seemingly very secure, etc. But it's, it's not really. It can't really be. And in a way, we've been numbed by uh, uh, all of that, or everything that's out there. So the Buddha, uh, in, the, in the mythological story of the Buddha, he was also the 
his father tried to protect him from seeing this insecurity in life. As many of you know, know the story, and I'm not sure how mythological it is and how real it is. But instead of sort of being numbed by TV and uh, Nintendo and iPod and you know whatever and all the advertisement, uh, it was actually numbed because his father actually kept him away from everything. And so uh, he went out and he encountered the four heavenly messengers. Which I actually forgot what they are. I think uh, a sick person, an old person, a dying person. And began to reflect in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, burning inside, reflecting with this question. He saw everything is unstable, everything dies. And he says to himself, Why should I, I who am subject to aging, sickness, and death, why should I seek that which is subject to aging, sickness, and death? Why should I seek refuge in that? It doesn't make any sense. And this was a burning question for him. In a way, our culture too, you know, we hide away dead people uh, for the most part. We cover it over. It's not something we talk about. Even terminal illness is sort of a bit hush-hush. We uh, cover over, we smooth over the uh, fragility, the insecurity of life. So there's a st- uh, story from the Jewish tradition. Some of you, some of you may know it. Uh, there was a, a a Jewish man, and he was on a business journey, traveling somewhere, probably in Eastern Europe, uh, a few hundred years ago. And he was traveling on, uh, to make this business deal or whatever. And he was passing through uh, a town, uh, Lodz or whatever, and. He suddenly remembered, ah, oh, there's a famous rabbi in Lodz. He's supposed to be a great mystic and a great, a very wise man. I'll go see him. And so he found the address and uh, went to see this rabbi, knocked on the door and was let into this house and up the stairs to, and the, pers- the person who let him in said, that's, that's the rabbi's room. And he knocked on the door and the rabbi answered and ushered him in. And he said, sit down. And he sat down. All there was was a chair in the room in which he sat, and the rabbi sat on the bed. And that's all there was in the room. There was a bed and a chair. And the, uh, the businessman was looking around and says, well, this is, this is a bit odd. You're, you're this famous, uh, you know, extremely respected rabbi. You know, he said, rabbi, where's all, your, where's all your stuff? Where are all your things? And the rabbi the rabbi said, well, where are yours? And he said, well, I'm just passing through. And the rabbi said, so am I. And so, sometimes we can hear something like that, and I don't know what the implication of the story was, but sometimes we can hear something like that, and, and maybe have the sense, oh, well, there's some place beyond that's our real home. Heaven or, or something. I'm not saying that was in the story, but maybe we can hear that. The Dharma, Dharma teaching doesn't really point to that. And so it's something else. It's something else.
Why is it to find a home not in a beyond? So, sometimes we find ourselves in a period of our life, uh, either through deliberate choice or through circumstances, where things are very groundless, where we have no sense of home and we're missing it and we feel very uncertain in that groundlessness. Sometimes this is there for a person anyway, as part of their um, part of their karma, if you like. They actually have a very deep sense, an almost existential sense of groundlessness, of not belonging in life, and can be very, very painful. But whatever, whatever it is, I think it's uh, wherever it's coming from, really crucial that that feeling is difficult to be with, groundlessness, uncertainty, it's painful, it's not easy. We need to connect with that feeling. We need to actually touch that feeling with kindness and presence and really connect with it. To connect with what the groundlessness actually feels like with the fear of it, um, with the existential uncertainty. In a way, that connection, that very connection with what is difficult, is a kind of home. That connection is home. Sometimes a person has everything around them, has a home, has a uh, community, has this and that. There's not that connection and it's not worth anything. The first port of call is connection with ourselves when things are difficult, because we tend to disconnect. When we're disconnected, nowhere feels like home. Nowhere feels like home. So sometimes, if that's the situation for, for, for someone, there's, there is a sense of groundlessness, of uncertainty. Um, we need to connect with that and be in that space in a, in a patient and listening way. We can actually listen deeply. And sometimes a person may be unsure about direction or where, uh, what, what should be the direction. What is the direction home? What do I want to build or let happen or move towards or whatever it is? So we have to be very quiet and non-reactive in that space, connected and listening deeply listening deeply and this is not easy but even then are we being in that space of the unknown waiting for the known is my relationship to the unknown just just uh, about waiting for the known to appear I know what I'm going to do I know where I'm going to be I know, I know what's what and in place I mean, to a certain extent, that's fine, but you have to. We have to see as well. Life, our experience of life, is always uh, a marriage of the known and the unknown. So, what we experience as the known, what we feel as the known, is always moving into the unknown. It's always moving, falling into, decaying into the unknown. And what is unknown is becoming known. 
This is just the experience of our life. The known is always smaller than the unknown. In a way, the unknown embraces the known. Sometimes a person with with exposure to teachings and practice and spiritual traditions says, well, I'm going to make a a home in the moment, Um, a home in what is, whatever is in the moment. This is very beautiful. It's a beautiful uh, way to approach uh, certainly the moment or life. And in a way, in in the teaching, especially in this tradition, we tend to give uh, almost... Uh, an exalted mystical uh, status to the moment as if it's something holy the moment is all about the moment being in the moment and this moment and this moment and this moment that's a beautiful way to practice and you might want to experiment you know at times in your life or at times in your practice what is it to make a, a home in the moment a home in what is so there can be a lot of freedom, a lot of joy, a lot of beauty in that approach. But there will never be a sense of complete security there. Because however uh, okay we can feel with the changing of things, what is, the moment is always changing. It is just always changing. And existentially there will be that some sense of dissatisfaction with that. Just the fact of change, even however okay we are with it. person thinks, let go of the past, let go of the future, be in the present moment. But the Buddha says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. person might think, also exposed to teachings, make a home in impermanence. In the, in the fact of change, I'll be alive to that, surfing, surfing the change. And again, very beautiful and really a possibly very fruitful way of approaching practice in a sitting, in a walking, over a period of three months, over a period of three years, whatever it is. <coughs> Making a home in impermanence. But it's interesting impermanence. We go, you know, again, t- impermanence, something teachers go on and on about impermanence, especially you know, Buddhist teachers in this tradition. And sometimes, you know, I, I have to ask, and I, I've asked it other times, is it making a difference? We're aware of impermanence. Everyone agrees on impermanence. It's obvious. Is it making a difference to us? Are we actually feeling more secure when we contemplate impermanence? Are we feeling more free? One of the things, if we're going to open to the change, there's this incessant change there is, this incessant dying of things there is. Uh, one of the things that allows that to make a difference, so that we're responding to it in a way that's actually opening the heart and, and um, uh, freeing us, is how much sense of well-being there is in life. So I think sometimes we put out this message of just being in the moment, letting go, and and noticing impermanence, and and letting go. And I think there's too much 
there's too much it's a bit of a ridiculous expectation to expect people to be able to let go um, give up when there isn't enough inner resources built up when there isn't enough inner sense of well-being whatever you want to call that joy, happiness, just well-being ease, peace, whatever so we're saying look at impermanence look at impermanence, look at impermanence nothing's happening, either one gets kind of existentially freaked out by the fact or it's just, yeah, so what? When there's, when there's a sense of well-being, that the inner resources have been built up, then um, there's actually a reverence when we begin contemplating impermanence. There's, there's something beautiful, mystical there, something wondrous. The heart is, is in a state of awe with it. And this sense that I was talking about, that the unknown being larger than the known, embracing the known, uh, there's something mystical and freeing and beautiful in that. So the other day, uh, someone actually was saying to me, uh, was having some difficulty digesting uh, the lentils, basically. <laughs> and um, I was saying there was a lot of joy in the practice. And... Uh, some lunch arrived, whatever, and it was it didn't was not going to agree with her digestive system, and so she just left it. But it was completely fine, and she realised that it was completely fine. There was this ability to let go because there was the joy there, because there was the joy there. There's too much, I think, to expect us to let go without having um, deepened, cultivated our inner resources. Buddha is uh, really encouraging us to make a home in uh, in those inner resources, in in what is beautiful. So some of you have heard uh, the, the phrase Brahma Vihara, uh, which means sublime or divine dwelling. Vihara is actually meaning abode or dwelling. The practices, these four practices, are for. Um, cultivations of mind, of loving-kindness, metta, of compassion, of joy, and equanimity. And the Buddha says, make your home, make your vihara, let the heart dwell in these, develop them, so that they become uh, the, the kind of place where the heart spends its time, the, the, the resting place of the heart, a beautiful, nourishing skillful resting place of the heart mostly where, where does our heart and mind dwell is, is in not too much of the skillful not too much of the helpful in calmness the Buddha gives all these that we were talking about uh, I think earlier this morning these lists of qualities this is what to develop this is where to make your home and oftentimes people make the objection, yeah, but that's impermanent, that's going to change, I shouldn't get attached because it will change. <coughs> it will change, but we can, what can happen is that over the, over the years, really, we develop, that becomes the kind of 
default groove of the mind, the default place where the mind settles in, in kindness, in compassion, in a sense of well-being, openness, equanimity, calmness, instead of all the rest of it, agitation, irritability, insecurity, etc. Not to underestimate the power of that, the enormous power of that to really give a sense of security in one's life. And it doesn't happen suddenly, it doesn't happen either easily. There are lifelong cultivations. Buddha talks also about uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. So, to take refuge in the Buddha, to take that as our home, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, one level of meaning might be to take refuge in, again, this sense of aspiration, of directionality in life, our potential for awakening. Just holding that for ourselves is a sense of orientation of home even though it's something that we're moving towards it's actually a sense of home we know where we're headed we know what matters taking refuge in the Dharma uh, we talked about already this cultivation of what's beautiful taking refuge in the Sangha so this is extremely important for us especially as lay people to find others, to, to connect with others that really support us and give us a sense of community, of belonging, uh, of looking together, exploring together, supporting each other on the practice, in the practice. When, uh, for some people, when, when the mindfulness gets really strong and practice sort of really... Uh, kind of deepens there can be a sense that everything is changing everything is changing but the awareness is staying steady and the awareness is just there kind of witnessing everything can sometimes feel as if awareness is a vast space in which all this uncertainty all this change all this loveliness and difficulty is arising and passing, and the awareness is kind of effortlessly embracing it. And it's just steady. So it is a possibility. I'm just speaking now about the possibilities of practice. And sometimes a person says, or my hear, uh, certainly in the teachings, to make a home in awareness. And again, this is very skillful. This is a very skillful and very beautiful way of practicing. What would that mean to actually rest in awareness and take the sense of home and security and rootedness in the space of awareness? So, that's a possibility to practice with, to orient your practice towards. It's something that comes, I think, as practice deepens, so you can't really force it. But even that has, has problems, because what's going to happen when we die? It can seem like all our experience is being born and dying, being born out of that awareness and dying back into that awareness. It can seem like that. 
But to really have a sense to really have a sense of security in that awareness, we actually have to take a leap of faith and assume that that awareness continues after death. Who knows? Who knows? We kind of need a faith in an eternal awareness. And to me that's not quite secure because, as I said, who knows? Some of these approaches, uh, impermanence and being in the moment, are about a more, you could say, more about giving up the whole idea of security and just saying, life is not secure, it's not possible. Uh, let me surrender and open to that very sense of insecurity, and somehow in that there will be a sense of security. The Buddha actually tends to phrase his original, originally, he tends to phrase his his uh, teaching differently and actually uh, says try and find please try and find the highest security the true security so he talks about nirvana nirvana and there's uh, at one point there's a list of kind of um, synonyms for nirvana for this and some of them are the secure or security the shelter, the refuge. So he's pointing to something and saying, this is available, this is available. Sometimes there's a sense that whatever we experience is somehow not quite it. Whatever is in the realm of experience is not quite it. Won't be, it's what the Buddha calls dukkha. It's just, it's not quite completely satisfactory. It's not quite secure completely. And for, uh, in, in deep levels of practice, just want to unfold to how, how the practice unfolds a little bit. Deep levels of practice, one is actually just looking at all things and feeling the sense of, of uh, not secure, not secure, not secure. Even lovely, beautiful, mystical states, state oneness and uh, a sense of deep connection or infinite love or whatever. Somehow there's still this something a bit unsatisfactory there. can be a bit, uh, a sense of something beyond and yet we can't find that beyond. This is what from another tradition is called the dark night of the soul. There's a sense of something. Nothing seems to do it. Nothing seems to do it. And there's a lot of actual, uh, there's a great degree of letting go and freedom in that, but there's still this kind of gnawing uh, pain almost. Sometimes a person is sitting with these kind of questions in their practice, not as abstract sort of, you know, theological ideas or whatever. Uh, real, real questions in, in their practice. 
begins to look in a different way and notice, starts to notice home and security or even time and the future they are only in a way they are only given meaning they only mean something in relation to a self that I believe in to how much I believe in this separate sense of of self, of ego the more the self sense the more uh, the more home and security and future have a meaning you can actually at very deep levels of practice you can actually see this in the practice let go of some of the self sense and all that stuff begins to uh, dissolve its meaning somewhat more self sense back it comes back it's built Begin, a person can begin to to wonder everything that I'm trying to shore up as security, as home, or everything that I'm trying to keep at bay and be secure from, protected from. Maybe that's all, in a way, empty. It's all kind of built up. This is not easy to see. So sometimes we have a division between what we call the real world and. Uh, Guy House or something and when we think you know, people say oh, I'm going back to the real world or, or I need to be in the real world now and what do we really mean when we say that when that's said what does it mean Oftentimes, what's actually meant is from the vast sort of uh, infinite scope and complexity of our experience in life we take five maximum seven things money career, relationship, home, etc. And we call that the real world. Those, those things, we give them some extra inherent significance. And then sometimes in that kind of mode of thinking, then we come on retreat and it's sort of getting away from the real world, either fleeing it or wanting to kind of, you know, feverishly stock up on our mindfulness and and metta so that we can go out and deal with that stuff. It's very, very difficult to see how we build these things up into how we build up a sense of a world and a real world. It's, It's extremely difficult. It seems so obvious and so taken for granted. We build these things up as significant it's very difficult to have faith uh, that they may be empty. They may be not as real as they seem. Maybe the whole idea of ownership is uh, a myth. Maybe it's not what it seems. Very difficult to see. It's very difficult to even believe in that possibility. Someone says, you know, why don't you have... uh, Retirement, blah 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 blah. Can't understand. Can't understand that maybe there's a way of seeing that it just it just doesn't have that reality. That this life actually is not what it seems to be. It's very difficult to see that. What happens right now? Moment of complete listening. Just listen.
there's real listening, total presence. What's real? Listen. Really listen. we get a whisper of it, just the faintest whisper, but that's not enough, that's not enough. So it's very difficult, it's extremely difficult to puncture that belief in the reality of all, all that, all this. Sometimes a person sees that and they say, you know, if we go right to the end of all this, where it's going, say, well, okay, it's all empty, I'll make my home in emptiness. I'll make my home in wisdom. And actually the really deep teachings say, well actually, wisdom's also empty, and emptiness is also empty. Although again, very skillful, very skillful to say, I make my home in wisdom. What a deep place to have one's home, or in emptiness. So Jesus, uh, to quote Jesus, Foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man, a person dedicated to the truth, has no place to rest his head. Maybe he was speaking on a practical level. I wonder what the deeper mystical meaning of that is. And the Buddha also, one who abides nowhere abides freely. One who dwells nowhere dwells freely. Like I said at the beginning, we're actually, whether we like it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're dealing with these questions all the time. All the time. We have a need for security, uh, we have a movement towards it. We're dealing with it all the time. The question is, can it be really conscious? Can we really go into it deeply? And can we even view our lives as a pilgrimage into a deep sense of home? And that deep sense of home turns out to be the same as a deep sense of homelessness. And a pilgrimage into a deep sense of homelessness turns out to be the same as a deep sense of home.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.